Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the weekly Mormon News Roundup, where Ian and D-Days are going to ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. This is episode 65 coming at you, and we've got Ian Wilkes, who's going to co-host. The church, uh, LDS Church abuse rates of sexual abuse, that has made the news once again. We're going to talk about that. We're going to give you a bunch of temple updates. And also, the United Kingdom has formally announced that they're doing background checks for persons who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who will be working with children. We're also going to give you some breaking news here from some inside sources, including potential female colonies that never have been open before. And also breaking, there's a Preach My Gospel updates. There's a role of technology in advancing and accelerating the church. We've got an absolutely fantastic episode for you. And I'd like to bring onto the program here, Ian Wilkes. Ian, welcome to the Mormon News Roundup. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be here, Divis. Oh, that's that's tremendous. Uh, and so uh, you're uh, you, you kind of made the rounds here. You were uh, you were a part of a state presidency and you're also the host of uh, Inside Out. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am uh, from the UK originally. I grew up in a uh, socialist working class coal mining community in the north of England in a, a small village called Airedale, town called Castleford. Um, it's an interesting community. Uh, quite a tough, uh, tough community. Grew up in a, on a council estate. I'm not sure if you know what that is uh, in the US. I'm not sure what that would be. It's, it's basically state or, or, or government funded housing. So it was quite, um, you know, a, a poor neighborhood, you know, working class and, and, and a, quite a tough community. And uh, an area where the missions were instructed not to track, um, not to go, yet they did. And they found me and I joined the church um, against the advice and support of my family at the age of 16. This is in the 80s. And uh, long story short, I was um, thrown out of the house for joining the church. It was a, an interesting time. I slept on a park bench for two, three nights, slept on a friend's couch, and then bishop in the local ward got wind of my um, plight and uh, took me in and um, I rented a room and um, basically uh, went through all the programs of the church and uh, it was it was great great experience i was um, in seminary for a couple of years i served a mission in scotland um, in the uh, in the late 80s uh, came back um, i was a branch president on the mission uh, and then i got released i think i'm still a branch president uh, after 35 years ago and then came home got married sealed in the temple in the london temple and uh, served a, a different calling, served as a bishop uh, for quite a number of years. That was uh, that was in Scotland and uh, moved to Canada in 2006, 2007 and was called within months, actually, quite to my surprise and other surprise, uh, other people's surprise called to uh, serve in a state presidency. And um, so did that for quite a while and then discovered some issues, did some investigation and um, decided that um, the church was uh, uh, lacked integrity in certain areas and decided that to keep my integrity, I, I couldn't be part of an organization that uh, wasn't completely honest and truthful about certain things. And so I decided to uh, resign. I resigned on membership in uh, 2016, 2017. 
Um, our family are out. Um, I'm out on my on my um, uh, wife's side. They're all active in the church. You know, bishops and there's other. You know, they're all active, very much involved in the church. My side of the family, they never joined the church. Um, it, it was just me that joined the church at that, that uh, at that time. And so, uh, and so I, you know, left the church and uh, recently I had an idea of uh, creating or launching a podcast with a, a missionary companion of mine, Jim Bennett, who you know uh, pretty well. Jim's much more well known than I am. He's a, more of a professional podcaster than I am. And so I thought it would be a good idea to have to do the podcast. It was called Inside Out. He's on the inside. I'm on the out. And the, uh, the intent was to ultimately help people navigate their issues, answer tough questions, get into some of the detail in terms of what's behind the policies and pre procedures and the processes, some of the thinking, provide a unique and distinct perspective from a leadership uh, perspective in regards to how the church thinks. You know, serving in a state presidency, you get to work with temple presidents and mission presidents and general authorities and apostles. I was set apart and called by Elder Oaks in 2010, I think it was. Um, Elder Cook was his junior companion at the time. So I spent some time with, with, uh, with those two individuals and other general authorities and getting trained and, and seeing how the church operates in a leadership, um, at a leadership level, which is often, well, it's, it's quite different than, than a lot of people's experiences in terms of, you know, the general membership. Uh, it's a very different world, I think, is the leadership. So the, the inside out is, is there to provide a different perspective, look at the, the um, uh, opportunities for change and improvement in the church, criticize uh, constructive the church where, where it needs to change and improve, but certainly highlight the uh, the qualities, you know, where the church uh, gets things right. And it does a lot of things, really good things, is to talk about that and to give it credit where it's deserved. But really to be a voice to um, influence the church for the better, if that's possible, and to uh, improve it so it's a, a, good, a better experience for uh, for people. Um, yeah, I did look up. I did look up your state presidency information. By the way, if you go back to the Church News Archives, they announced the state presidencies, and this was uh, back in 2011. You okay. scroll down, and um, if you scroll down to these uh, state presidents back there, you scroll all the way to the bottom, you're going to find uh, Mr. Uh, Brit uh, Vernon, British Columbia State, April 17, 2011, okay. President and Andrew Draper. And then uh, the first counselor, David H. Smith. And then I see a certain individual, Ian Wilkes, 45A business owner, and his wife, Debbie Owens Wilkes. So, yeah, that was uh, 2011. Time flies, huh? Yeah, time flies. I thought it was 2010. But, yeah, it, it's gone by quick. I think I left in, in 2017. I'm maybe 218, I think it was. So, yeah, I've been, I've been out by, you know, five years uh, of the church. Uh, so, yeah, so the state presidency, again, that, that, that was an extraordinary um, experience. Uh, mostly positive, uh, but not not entirely. So, yeah, um, you know, uh, just a small uh, trivia. You uh, you served your mission in Scotland, and I just want to let you know that my father also served a mission in Scotland. Uh, he was there in 1961 to 1963, oh, wow. so I think that's a little ahead of your time, right? A little bit ahead of my time, yes. That's uh, yeah. The church has been there for a long time. I think um, you know, going way way back, you know, to uh, you know the. Uh, Pali P. Pratt, I think it was, going all the way back. The church has got a long history uh, in Scotland. Um, you know, David B. Haight was the mission president there. Bernie P. Brockbank was the mission president there. My mission president was Ben B. Banks. Uh, well, Joel Dunn, who was the brother of Lawrence C. Dunn. Actually, it was, it was Joel Dunn's son that uh, brought me into the church, incidentally. That was when I was 16, and a few years later, his dad was my mission president in Scotland. 
and then he was released by Elder Ballard in July 87 in, in Edinburgh, Scotland. The, the mission was reorganized, restructured, and Benby Banks was called, and he was he was an extraordinary mission president. And then he was called as a general authority, I think, in July 89. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd gone home by then. And he became a, a significant leader uh, in the church in um, Australia, I think area president. And he was also, I think, on the Quorum of the Seventy, or the presidency of the Quorum of the Seventy, I'm not quite sure. But again, you can Google all about uh, Benby Banks. He was a Jordan mission, uh, temple president, rather. And it was, it was also the church's, I'm not sure what the official name is, um, but it was the the individual the nickname is a greeter so basically this is person that organizes and meets and facilitates meetings between the first presidency and uh prime ministers and presidents and leaders of, of, of uh, you know countries and organizes meeting with ngos around the world on behalf of the first presidency so ben b banks uh, again extraordinary individual wonderful man very kind very caring very close to the first presidency at the time especially uh Ella Packer, um, who called him into that calling and uh, had, it was just wonderful uh, to have Ben B. Banks as a mission president. And um, so the podcast that which uh, I'm doing with Jim Bennett uh, and I, uh, you know, he brings a unique, a very distinct and a very unique perspective. He's, uh, you know, his family's been in the church for generations. Uh, you know, his his, um, his history in the church is, and, and family history is, is, is very different to mine. Uh, you know, he's, he's got a political background. His father was a senator. Him and I served our missions together in Scotland. I come from a completely different background, you know, convert, working class, um, you know, very different, a different country, different accent, different culture completely. And so we, I think we bring we bring that or we try to bring some of those qualities into the uh, podcast to talk about, uh, explore things that have already been discussed, but from a different perspective, talk about things that... Um, I've only been covered to some extent, so bring bring new fresh perspectives and new dimensions into topics that have only been maybe um, discussed, uh, um, not not in great length or great detail. But um, the other uh, third piece to that is to bring new information, um, new intelligence, new um, uh, knowledge and information about what the church is doing or trying to do. And there's a couple of things that. Uh, I want to highlight or bring into the podcast here, which I think is quite uh, quite new and quite hot off the press. I don't think a couple of the items I want to kind of mention have been discussed or even referenced before. So we'll we'll see what the reaction is to those um, that new stuff that we've got. Yeah, your uh, ratings on Apple uh, Podcasts are very very high, and I've listened to I think almost every one of your episodes. I think you have thirteen episodes now, and I um, am a big Jim Bennett fan, and I think you guys are doing a tremendous job. Thank and I, I wish you the very, very best. And uh, I also wish you the best with our Mormon News Joke of the Week. I understand you've got that for us, right? I do. I do. It, it, it's, I've got a few jokes, but this one is more of a device. Uh, this is a, a story, uh, an experience, quite an embarrassing uh, experience. Uh, I wasn't there, but it was relayed to me for, uh, by one of the councillors, actually, in the state presidency shared this with us. It was difficult to stop laughing. Um, when we heard the story and in fact through the state presidency meeting that lasts several hours we we kind of chuckled and, and, and giggled throughout the meeting um so here's the story so in in the state where i was called and this uh, i wasn't there but this was related to me by one of the other councillors um a there was a fast and testing meeting and and you probably know that this the councillors get uh, the state president delegates the or, or can delegate 
uh, units uh, to one councillor and delegate other units to another councillor. We had a north-south divide split between me and the, uh, the other councillor. And um, you go to these meetings and uh, you preside at the meeting. You have to sit on the stand. And, and, and during fast and test of meeting, where I prefer to be with my family, um, you are required to sit on the stand and to preside at the meeting. And, and uh, so one of the councillors was at a fast and test of meeting. And this senior sister, this uh, older lady got up and uh, in a very, uh, quite a somber, very serious uh, look on her face, uh, looked at the congregation and uh, put her hands on the pulpit and said, brothers and sisters, um, I wonder if you could help, uh, help us as a family. Uh, I would appreciate it if you would pray for my husband's scrotum. Whoa, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's 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 that that really happened. Yep. Wow. So this 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 is what really happened. And so uh, I think most of the members didn't hear this. I mean, you know, it's, it's just extraordinary, you know. Uh, to face <laughs> oh, boy. And then she said, yeah, it's causing me a lot of pain. It's uh, itching at night. I can he imagine. Has, he has cream on it, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we really need your need your, your faith and prayers to to you know uh, for this problem to to heal. He's uh, seen the doctor and she's talking about this. And by this time, uh, there's a bit of quite a bit of a silence. The congregation goes silent. Uh, people are looking at each other. It's it, it's it's very awkward, as you can imagine. That the atmosphere's changed somewhat. Uh, the spirit's probably left by now and so the sister and the bishop's looking you know what uh, the heck is going on and the other counselor is looking across at the bishop wondering what what is going on what do we do and this sister was um deeply you know very, very beloved in, in the ward and just deeply respected wonderful sister and she said please pray you know for my uh you know my husband's uh scrotum uh he uh needs your help and uh if you can do that we'd be grateful she then bore a testimony and closed and, and sat down and then her husband stood up and walked um, slowly, uh, somewhat embarrassingly, to the uh, pulpit and leaned forward and said, brothers and sisters, um, sternum. Oh. Sternum. <laughs> so, you know, the congregation <laughs> laughed. Everybody burst out laughing. I, again, I wasn't there. This was really. <laughs> and the counselor shared this with the state presidency, and we just laughed and laughed. Yeah. I, I knew the person that they were talking about. And so he said, it's my sternum, brothers and sisters. I, okay. I, I've, had a, uh, I've got a problem with sternum. I need to go into an operation. And uh, so that, that was funny. And, and, um, and so you see things like that, you know, that happens from time to time. And so I, I think uh, I won't stop. That was it. That was the, that was the funny story. And um, it was, uh, I wasn't there, but it must have been quite extraordinary experience. That just reminds me of the Book of Mormon musical when uh, the second half of the musical when he uh, talks about maggots. Um, I won't get into that because that's a little too gory. But yeah, that did remind me of that. Now, if you want to get in touch with uh, if you want to get in touch with your humble host here, you can send me an email to colob at mormonnewsroundup.org or you can come on over to our website. We're at www.mormonnewsroundup.org. We'd be delighted to hear from you. If you have articles that you want us to cover on our next uh, Mormon News Roundup, We'd be happy to cover them if you will submit those to us. And that does take us to our first news article here. And uh, this was very interesting here, Ian. Uh, Jennifer Rose, she's back at it again. She's uh, written in Public Square magazine. And she keeps writing about uh, LDS uh, church abuse rates. And the title of the headline here is, I know how to lower church abuse rates by 75%. 
And that's quite a clickbait title here. And she has a number of suggestions that I thought that we could briefly go over. Uh, number one is she says that uh, the church has been talking about this for a long time. And uh, that's how that's helped. And also she talks about number two, most churches are not organized geographically, uh, um, what the LDS church is, which means you can't bounce around from congregation to congregation to find new victims. So the LDS uh, structure of having your stake of being assigned a stake award, she says that that would help other churches. Uh, sustaining uh, people who work with children as a public announcement. Um, that's a positive step, she says, and that uh, because the church uh, uses callings versus volunteering, that that's also a positive step. And because most people who work with children in the church are married, well, married people have less uh, rates of abuse. And she also talks about how the church also utilizes female leadership. Those are her six steps here, Ian, to uh, reduce, reducing church abuse rates. What, I know you read this article. Uh, how do you feel about Jennifer's uh, approach here, Ms. Uh, Ms. Roach's approach to lowering church abuse rates? Yeah, I, I read, I did some research on this, I read this, and I, and I, I you know, I think her intent is good, but I uh, I think it's riddled, her, her, her comments there, her thoughts are riddled with uh, with holes. Um, if you look at the first one, uh, She's, she's admitting that the, um, you know, long before mandatory reporting laws, background checks were in place, quote, the church was already thinking of these issues uh, way back in 1985 with the child abuse help for ecclesiastical leaders uh, material. Well, if that's the case, why didn't the church register uh, ahead of all the laws and regulations? We might get into that on this podcast. Why did the church lead the way, show the initiative and actually have um, uh, the those who were called into serving uh, with children or minors and youth, why did they do background checks back then? They didn't. And so if they knew about these issues back then, why didn't they have training in place? Why didn't they do the background checks then? You know, why are they not ahead of the curve in regards to dealing with these issues if they knew it back then? And remember the church uh, as uh, repeatedly said, it doesn't say it anymore now, that in section 130, that it's the only true and living church upon the face of the earth. Uh, in the temple recommend questions, it's clear that um, that the you know the question around you sustain the prophet is the only person on the earth who's got the keys uh, of the kingdom, etc. So you know the prophet has got the uh, you know head of the curve. He knows what's going on out there. He's got direct hotline to God. He know they can see the issues ahead, etc. Clearly, they did back then in 1985. Notwithstanding, they didn't do anything back then. And in fact, it took uh, government legislation to put pressure on the church to, um, which is what's happening in the UK, to put pressure on church, not just the church, but other organizations, faith-based organizations and other companies and other charities who, whose people do work with youth. Uh, that uh, inspiration came from government and it certainly didn't come from, uh, from any faith uh, that I can see. If you look what's happening in the Catholic church, again, it was legislation uh, across the world in certain parts of the world that brought these organizations to account. It was the uh, revelation, if you like, that was given to government ministers rather than the prophet on the earth. That's on the first one. And then if you look at the second one, uh, existing associations there, uh, again, a description of how churches are organized, um, you know, across geographies is not quite, uh, not quite accurate. She claims that the church, the way the church is structured and organized, uh, makes it very difficult for an abuser to um, be called into uh, into these callings, these volunteer callings. I completely disagree. I think until recently, it's been very easy for uh, people to get um, 
called into these callings. Certainly, you've got, you've got places in the world where they're struggling with leadership, they're struggling to even fill callings. And so if you say yes uh, to you know, some of the callings, you, you, get the, you get the calling extended. Uh, you've got serious calling gaps across the world, like in UK and certainly across Europe. And anyone that says yes to accepting a calling, they get the calling. Um, it's more about filling the, uh, it's more administrative than it is spiritual. I think that's changing now with these, um, with these laws, but we can't look to the church to show the leadership. It's really following the, uh, the legislation that's happening in certain parts of the world. Where countries don't have that legislation, the church is not obligated to do background checks. Uh, other questions that are really important in this respect is, in regards to training bishops and state presidents to and, and, and volunteers and people that work with youth and children, uh, who's delivering that training? Where's that training coming from? Is it an external organization that's providing the training? Where if a lot of it is online. It's just an online 30 minute module. Sure, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not an outside organization that's right. delivering that, right? Right. So right. it's basically a bank, it's like a, a, a company regulating itself. You know, who's doing the training? Is the training uh, meeting all the, the, the professional standards? No, it's not. Um, what is the outcome from the training? Where's the, uh, the mechanisms for measuring the decrease in, uh, in, in, in abuse that's going on in, in the church? So the church is professing to be or trying to be transparent only within its own processes and regulations, but it won't open up its organization to external uh, training uh, organizations that've got the, you know, the professional skills because it will it doesn't want to show its um, inner workings of the church and so it, it, it's trying to be transparent in word to an extent indeed um, but uh, you know without that external oversight it, it, you won't get the transparency that it, that people need and, and we need we all need we want to see that and it's concerned about the accountability it, it's going it's going to regulate and manage its own um, you know its own activity in this area so it, it's it is an important step forward it, it is it is encouraging it is progress but let's get let's do full transparency let's completely open let's get an external organization in let's see what the real issues are within the church and let's uh uncover that and let's see you know let's let's see the facts rather than having that information um managed and contained by the church the other thing as well, sustaining as a public announcement. Well, yeah, you can you put the name forward before the bishopric for the for the individual being called. You don't know whether or not what whether their background is, uh, you know, whether they've got any uh, any history in regards to uh, sexual assault necessarily. That's only privy to the bishop. Uh, often it's not the councillors. It's privy to the uh, it's, it's available to the state presidency. And we get into that. There's reasons why the state presidency have that. The bishop usually uh, will know that, but his councillors may not know that. The membership won't know uh, the person's background who had been called to um, the calling. And if they do, the culture is you don't uh, you don't vote against um, people being called. Uh, you know, I've been in the callings that I have. Rarely, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but rarely do you see people uh, delivering an opposing vote when somebody's called. It just doesn't happen very often. You know, we look at the members and they all put their hand up and they sustain them. So you can't rely on sustaining as a public announcement to uh, to to weed out these uh, these types of individuals. There's also a point for their calling versus volunteering. Well, I don't see the difference between the two. 
the calling is volunteering. You know, there's a paid, these are lay lay members, and um, again, using that as a you know, I, I don't fully understand what she's saying in terms of what the difference is there between calling and, and volunteering and how that protects uh, children. Um, it, it just doesn't. The church is very much a soft target. The whole point of the church is to be friendly, to be warm, to invite people in, and to um, to extend a, a hand of friendship and, and fellowship. And to, I mean, look at the look at the structure, look at the organisation, look at the look at the training, look at the the motives and the goals. Uh, the objective is to get people into callings as quickly as possible. Otherwise, you lose retention. So you baptise them. And one of the main uh, criteria for retaining people is to extend the calling as quickly as possible. Bishops are under pressure to get these people in the calling. So I don't think, uh, you know, this, um, you know, the, the, the process, I think it's an important step forward in terms of the church acknowledging the need to do background checks in certain countries. And it's, but it's only doing that because it has to. And well, let me just say, I mean, first of all, her, she has six points that she says will lower church abuse rates, but you've talked a great deal in, in about background checks. That was not one of her suggestions. What most people consider to be the overwhelming easiest thing to do that will catch the most amount of people, she completely ignores. It's not even number one on her list. It doesn't even make the top six. She mentions background checks on point one. She says they're long before mandatory reporting laws and background checks. So she makes reference to it. And the material on the source that I've got, which is the uh, Meridian magazine, which is the LDS magazine. So she just make reference to it. It's there. So she but says long before before anyone was doing background checks, leaders talked about it. But one of her steps to reduce abuse was not conducting mandatory background checks for everyone right. who has the potential uh, to right. be around kids. And most people would consider that to be the number one, not number six, not number five. Yeah. The number one thing she completely uh, she completely leaves it off. It's hard to take the rest of this article seriously when she doesn't really even deal with the elephant in the room. It, it is. I couldn't agree more. She makes reference to it, but she doesn't. She doesn't deal with it, and it's not a priority. And again, if you look at number five, she talks about the traditional conventional, uh, you know, family unit, you know, uh, biological parents, and uh, and you know, kids staying uh, in in that traditional family setting compared to. Um, being in a different setting where they're they're prone to risk, and they make, I think there are some studies to support that. And the other interesting thing, which I think is fascinating, uh, Davis, is the number six, which is female leadership. In that section, there, she's suggesting that um, she's saying that the vast majority of sexual abuse is committed by men, and that, that is true. Yes, there are women abusers, but 99 out of 100 abusers are male, and I think that's pretty reliable. She goes on to say most church youth group leadership who sets the general culture is entirely male. And there are likely female volunteers around the world, but they do not hold the same kind of responsibility. So she, if you look at that section on there, she's basically arguing, advocating for more uh, female leaders to be in decision roles, to influence uh, policy procedure, and influence activities and events. And, and I agree with that. I think there's a, there's a, a really important role for uh, female um, leaders to, to uh, you know, get into senior leadership roles, influence policy, influence process, uh, you know, make those decisions. And I think they, uh, you know, a, a female leader will bring more protection. I agree with that. And so she's advocating for more um, leadership and authority for female leaders. I don't think she, she's aware she's doing that. But in that last section, that's very clear to me. That's what she's trying to do. And I 
and I support that. So, so yeah, I I I, I take this with a, a a pinch of salt, but there are some aspects of this, elements of this, which I, you know, I, I see some value in regards to um, you know what she's trying to trying to do here. But yeah, yeah, there definitely is some value in some of her points. But the biggest overall point is a background check, and she does not hammer that home. She ignores it. And we've seen in the UK here that uh, just uh, the church finally announced here just a couple of days ago on uh, 20th of June, 2023, thanks to that uh, female, mostly female leadership that you spoke about of the Preventures, Europe, North America, uh, the Europe, North Area Presidency has uh, updated their safeguarding uh, policies and procedures um, with regards to, uh, you know, uh, you know, running background checks here. And this is from the church's official webpage. And this was released again by the uh, Europe North American President, uh, Europe North Area Presidency here. And this has just been a tremendous, uh, a tremendous boon to, you know, the United Kingdom. And um, it basically, the, this is the type of thing that needs to be outsourced to uh, other municipalities, other countries and other states. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I think, again, we're looking at legislation now. So, in Scotland, they, had, they brought out the Disclosure Scotland Act, I think, back in 2005, and that um, made it mandatory for faith-based organizations and other organizations to register uh, for those deadlines. And so I think England's doing this now, but I think it originated in Scotland way back then. And so you have to do these background checks. And those, and I've seen those. Um, you know, I've been involved in those in the past, and I... Um, uh, I have a little bit of insight into that, which I want to share on a, um, uh, a podcast that I'm doing with uh, with Jim Bennett. I want to get into some of that detail. But again, it's legislation that's leading the way. It's not revelation. It's not the prophet. It, in countries wh where that's not required, the church is not doing background checks. Uh, and you're right. The number one thing that you can do is to do background checks. The background checks, um, if the person hasn't been caught, then those background checks will not detect uh, you know, any any history. If they have been caught or cautioned, or there's any complaints of history, uh, that is uh, that would come up if it's been um, you know if it's been registered or if a complaint's been made about um, about that individual. Um, the, if you look at the the policy procedures with the Europe uh, North area presence, again they're, they're not it's not they don't give you the details the mechanics they don't talk extensively about they need to release people from the callings before they do background checks. I think that's important. They don't talk about Again, any outside external training organization to come in and to monitor to determine if that training internally is being delivered professionally to, you know, to the professional standards. It, the reality is it isn't. You know, bishops, state presidents, uh, youth leaders are not trained professionally. They can't give the counseling. They can't give the they can give some emotional support, some spiritual support. But dealing with and I've dealt with a lot of uh, uh, issues and, and abuse related issues. These individuals are in significant pain and they need professional help. And if you haven't got the training, the formal training or the resources uh, to give that level of support, then you really uh, you can actually make a, a, a bad situation worse. Uh, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a, a, an example here. Um, uh, why there's so much uh, sexual abuse, why it's so common in the Mormon church. One is the reputation of the church comes first. When Elder Oaks called me into the room uh, with Elder Cook and called me onto the state presidency, have a guess what the first question was that he asked me. Have a guess. Um, I, something with regards to your background. Did you have? Do you have anything embarrassing in your background? That's it. That's it. Is it anything in my background, my history that could harm the, the reputation of the church? Number one question. 
that was it. So the reputation comes first. You know, the, the preservation of the institution is, is most paramount. And remember, we're talking about probably the most uh, important issue, which is, you know, protecting children. You know, we're talking about sexual abuse of, you know, adults and children, etc. And in regards to legal risk and other risks, there's probably not anything more important than that in respect to threatening or risking the church. The second item, uh, again, from my experience is uh, bishops are not always required by law to report sexual abuse. There should be an international standard uh, uh, in terms of policies and procedures that have been reviewed and vetted by external organizations that are aligned with legislation that is uh, across the, uh, all of the world, regardless whether the legislation exists in the country in, in the country or not, where bishops and state presidents and others are, are required under the regulations of the church to do you know background checks, for the church to do background checks. And the training delivered to youth leaders and bishops, etc., delivered by an external approved accredited organization that is professionally trained to deliver this kind of training. The church is not doing that. It can do that. It's got the resources, for goodness sake, to do that. You know, $150 billion in its war chest, it can do that. The problem is it, it, it's regulating transparency and it's regulating, um, you know, uh, its um, accountability. It's controlling that. It will not uh, give up that uh, or allow an external organization to come in and, and review its processes and practices, which is, I hope will happen. And the last one, there's two actually. The other one is uh, forgiveness is a pillar of the faith. If you look at the materials you know, from the very beginning right through to present, uh, and all the materials, doctrine, policies, processes, they're all replete with examples of forgiveness. It, President uh, uh, Nelson recently uh, on the, on the uh, church website is focusing on forgiveness. We're all required to forgive. And if you look at the church handbook of instructions, um, and I've researched that for this podcast, the specific references to forgiving um, uh, perpetrators of sexual abuse. You know, as Christians, it says we're required to forgive. So you've got this culture of forgiveness. And if you don't forgive, uh, you yourself can't expect forgiveness from, from the Lord. So so that is, um, that's that. The other one is, do, uh, um, is regarding... Um, uh, the uh, talk that was given by um, uh, Richard Scott. Uh, so, you know, state presidents and bishops um, should ensure that what they say about abuse is based. Sorry, let me go back. Uh, reading the church website, this, I'll quote it here on the church website, which is under the safeguarding and protecting of, of children. It's under the abuse, help, healing, protection section of the church website and also the handbook of instructions. It says that state presences and bishops should ensure that what they say about abuse is based on church doctrine. Very important that the materials referred to this in this policy should be for, should form the basis of all the training. So if it's all rooted in church doctrine and church doctrine is delivered by leaders, uh, you know, apostles. Listen to this. So Richard G. Scott, who was a member of the Quorum of Apostles, highest ranking body of men in the church after the first presidency. Ellis Scott presented a talk entitled Healing the Tragic Scars of Abuse. That was in April of 1992 General Conference. 16 years later, he gave a similar talk, watered down version actually, in April 2008 conference. And he, he regurgitated uh, the, uh, uh, a newer version of the, of the talk that was given in, um, in 1992. And uh, both talks contain numerous examples of dangerous, misleading, abusive, uneducated, uneducated advice. He says this, which is extraordinary. Jim and I have talked about this on our podcast, uh, where we identified scriptures in the Canada scriptures, which are actually um, 
awful scriptures that should be removed, like Moroni 99, for example. So this is what Elder Scott said in his talk. The victim must do all in his or her power to stop the abuse. Most often, the victim is innocent because of, of being disabled by fear or the power or authority of the offender. At some point in time, however, the Lord may prompt the victim to recognize a degree of responsibility for the abuse. Uh, the priesthood leader will help you assess your responsibility so that, if needed, it can be addressed. Uh, it, you know, I won't continue the rest of the, uh, the quote there, but it's, it, it's disgusting. It's grotesque. It's awful. If the, if the uh, policies and procedures are rooted in church doctrine, and this is church doctrine that we've been taught by Richard Scott, then there, there is a, a significant element of this, which is victim blaming, which is absolutely awful and disgusting. The church should disavow itself formally from those kind of uh, those kind of remarks. So is the church doing enough? Uh, no. Is it making small uh, steps? Yes. Is it controlling? Is it regulating? Is it, is it uh, monitoring? You know, its level of risk and exposure. Absolutely. Will it allow organizations to independent organizations to come in and, and look at the the church uh, in more detail? I, I don't see that ever happening. Not 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 in the foreseeable future. So, yeah, you know, this is a major problem. And the church still having known about this and being the only true living church on the face of the earth isn't doing enough, frankly, to protect children. And it's and, and other organizations are leaving it behind. You've got so many organizations that are much, being much more proactive and showing much more leadership and innovation around um, protecting children. Yet the only true church on the face of earth is still dragging its feet and, it, and some of it's just lip service. So anyway, I really appreciate your thought. Those are good thoughts for our listeners out there. Uh, if you'll drop us a comment in the uh, YouTube or wherever it is that you find this, let us know um, what you think that the church should be doing to protect children. Uh, should we be following what uh, uh, Mrs. Roach said? Uh, about uh, those six steps, should we be doing background checks? Let us know in the comment sections. We'd be very grateful for that. Now, our next uh, article here, Ian, is uh, really made the news over here on, um, you know, in Wyoming, and it's uh, with regards to the Cody Mormon Temple is getting the okay, but not the enormous 77-foot steeple. This continues to really, it really is in the news a lot here. Um, the, the the temple itself is supposed to be 40 feet tall. But the spire itself is going to be another 70 and uh, actually uh, 77. And the zoning board has given the uh, green light to the church, but they're pulling it back. There's 300 people that were crammed into the auditorium that talked about how they really didn't want a giant steeple. Um, this is what it's supposed to look like here in the middle of a uh, Wyoming country, which is very open. It's very rural. And, uh, you know, having the lights illuminated 24 hours a day uh, or for a, a long period of time and just, you know, dominating structure that's going to dominate the landscape. It's going to affect traffic patterns. There's just I, an unprecedented level of pushback on this particular temple that um, I've not seen before. Um, what, what do you think is uh, causing this? Uh, the, uh, you know, what do you think is causing this? Yeah, no, this is an interesting question. Uh, if you look at the, the Preston Temple in England, there's a lot of opposition to that. Uh, initially, you know, from local authorities, the local community, it was a very large spire. It was it's adjacent to the M60, uh, whatever motorway. It was just off the M62. I can't remember the, the motorway. It's right. It's quite prominent. Um, I think there was also opposition to the London Temple in 1958 when it was built as well. So, you know, the opposition to the to the temples and nothing new. 
I think I think the, we're going to see more uh, uh, opposition to temples because if you look at regular, I, I work in the regulatory environment on major uh, projects um, across different sectors, and we're seeing more regulations on buildings and, and uh, manufacturing operations and commercial buildings, etc., not less. So the regulatory framework in the North, in North America, certainly in UK and Europe, is becoming much more complex, and the processes for community involvement, stakeholder engagement you know, community uh, engagement, getting feedback from the community to get buy-in, that has reached um, a whole new level compared to say, you know, 10, 20 years ago where you could probably get, you know, this would have been built without probably question. But now with all the new process and regulations, it allows the public to have a say in, you know, whether they like something or not. Um, to me, I, I think they look beautiful. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree with all the building and expanding of the temples necessarily, but. I, I, I can say it's beautiful, but I'm not. I'm not living there. They might think it's a, a complete eyesore. But for whatever reason, um, and and their, the the community's feedback will be uh, captured, and, and we, you know, we can find out why they're against it. It might be a, a blot on the landscape. They might see the church as being dominating all the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the entire landscape because it's quite flat, etc. But again, you're seeing more regulations, not less. Is seeing more complex processes in public, um, you know, engagement and, and these these types of buildings, religious buildings, not less. There's also political probably opposition as well. There's probably opposition from other faith communities that uh, I've seen uh, in Scotland, where uh, in Stornoway in the Outer Hebrides they were trying to build a building, and there's a lot of opposition by the, um, you know, by the local uh, churches that saw the church as a cult, and they didn't want the Mormon church to be. Uh, you know, to have a presence or even have a building uh, on the Outer Hebrides there in Scotland. So, so there's probably a number of reasons why you know there's a lot of opposition to um, you know to this building, uh, and I've just cited a few of them. There might be others, but the feedback at those community meetings will be uh, is in the public domain, and it wouldn't be difficult to find out what the you know what the objectives are. Yeah, and uh, the the church has also announced. Uh, speaking of temples here, that uh, the first presidency has announced that the. Uh, the long tradition of temple cornerstone ceremonies that dates all the way back to Kirtland, all the way back to Nauvoo. Almost every temple has a cornerstone. Well, there's a statement that's been issued, especially considering that the temples are going to a more module, uh, a module type assembly, especially the uh, Helena temple that we've seen that they've been assembled basically off site. They're trucked on site and then assembled on site. There's no more really cornerstones that are available. Um, it's really kind of an antiquated thing. And Nebo the Mormon put out a very interesting take on this uh, about this particular statement. He said, is this the sort of statement the first presidency should be issuing? Could it not have come from the temple department freeing up the nonagenarians to do some prophesying, seeing or revelating? It seems like the um, items that the first presidency weighing into, they're not weighing into background checks, but they are weighing into cornerstone ceremonies. It seems like the priorities here are a bit misplaced. Yeah, I, I think there's some, I don't, I don't know why they're not doing the cornerstones. It's been a traditional uh, part of the dedication of the temple, right? Uh, there's some symbolisms around and, 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 and some history around that being the first stone. There's also um, an association with, you know, the cornerstone of the church. It's a term that's used, uh, you know, in the church, you know, uh, you know, the, I think the, the Book of Mormon is the cornerstone. I've heard that before, etc. I've heard that the temple is the cornerstone, etc. The first presence is the cornerstone. So the term is used in different ways to mean different things. But the cornerstone is a, you know, is an important um, phrase and term in the church. I don't know why they're, they're doing that. Um, 
I, I, they should keep it. I, I think they should, you know, they should, uh, no reason to stop that. In terms of priorities, if they are, and the church has got a long history of getting its priorities wrong uh, or, or getting, its, you know, not prioritizing the right things like protecting children, not getting into that to the extent that they need to, uh, and, and being more thorough, more transparent, more accountable on that. And then, you know, having more articles on the on the cornerstone. I, um, I, I don't know if that's true, what I've just said. I think the church is getting into the former um, more significantly. And that's that's encouraging. But I don't know why I don't know why they're not doing the cornerstone. I, um, I can't think of any reason why they would stop that, to be honest. Yeah, like I said, the modular temple construction and also um, the ability with more temples to send somebody out to do the ceremony is probably limited. That's not the only thing, though, that um, is in the temple area. And this was released here just uh, this last week as well. Temple recommend interview questions. Um, my understanding is these used to be in the general handbook of instructions. Now, um, the temple, it says the temple is the house of the Lord entering the temple and participating in ordinances as a sacred privilege to make the determination as to who is supposed to be able to qualify to go into the temple. Priesthood leaders interview the member using questions in the LCR. Now, um, Ian, I've, I've never been a member of a state presidency. Um, what is the LCR? Yeah, LCR is what it stands for. It, it's the it's the old MLS system. So member leadership services. It's basically uh, re, um, we, we need to go back and probably uh, edit this bit. But um, LCR is the church uh, leader uh, clerk resources. Leader leader. Clerk, thank, thank you. Someone had told me I've forgotten. Thank you. Yeah. So leader clerk services is a, a um, uh, a developed MLS system, which, which was member leadership services originally. That's what it was called when I was uh, in the bishopric or in the bishop and uh, state presidency. Um, so leader clerk services basically is um, a, a uh, operating or management um, enterprise resource management tool, which the church has uh, globally and leaders uh, have different people have different levels of access. So state presidency, for example, can... Um, check to see if there's any repetition on state uh, uh, patriarchal blessings. I don't know if you're aware that, that that actually happens as a process for that, for avoiding repetition. All the state presidents have got the authority to do that. Councillors and state presidency members can annotate records. They can check your temple recommend. Uh, you know, they can actually look at the records to see if you, is any anyone made any notes on your history, uh, whether you accepted a calling or not, uh, you know, any comments about the individual, uh, which are, uh, captured um, in this new system, etc. Uh, I don't know if actually bishops or state, I don't know if bishops are aware of the level of authority that state presidents have. And again, general authorities have a, 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 a another level in that uh, in that system. But if you have a recommend and they can measure, uh, you know, when you used it, where you went, you know, there's a barcode on that, uh, how many endowments, you know, how long you're in the temple, etc., etc. You know, they, they can actually measure your temple activity uh, by um, by looking at the uh, leadership clerk services. They can look at your donations, your tithing, you know, calling history. It's like a, um, it's like a you know, a, a member profile, uh, a database of members profiles and their activity across different functions of the church. So that's, yeah. that's what it is. It's, it's, it's an advanced, uh, a much more developed system than the early MLS uh, system. So. Yeah, when I try to go log in, when I try to go to the uh, LCR, the Leader Clerk Resources section, um, it prompts you for my username and my humble level of access, Ian, um, does not get me anywhere. I do find it remarkable that the Temple recommend questions, which uh, 
I know they were released in 2019 yep. um, and they were published then. But um, if there are any future updates, apparently, unless the church announces those to us, we won't know them because they're uh, behind the not a paywall, but they're uh, behind the more secure area of the of the website. Any last thoughts on all the all the temple stuff here, uh, Ian? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, there are 15 yes or no questions. They've, they've changed in 2019. They've been modified. The, the church has got some pushback on one of the questions, number seven, about, you know, do you um, associate with, you know, any uh, any organization uh, which uh, who te whose teachings or practices are contrary to or oppose those uh, accepted by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Yeah, bishops, state presidents, they, they memorize these questions very quickly. You, you, you do. I was doing eight, nine temple recommends, 20 on a weekend. So you get to memorize them. So I don't know why the questions are not in the handbook. There's no reason why they shouldn't be. They're certainly on the websites. They're all there for people to see. Uh, those questions are um, measured. You know, different leaders, uh, they, they, they respond differently to those questions. Some people just accept them at face value. Others uh, delve into the, into the questions if they see someone hesitating. And they shouldn't do this necessarily. You, you know, there's no reason unless it's... Um, to do with protecting a member that's different but some leaders uh use this as a i've seen this before they they, they can um use it to control you know the the conversation and, and if they're not satisfied with the response they can ask it again and i've i've seen that it can be very difficult for the member uh, most leaders are pretty good and they they take the, the answer you know at face value in regards to the temple uh the church has resisted until recently i think there's going to be some changes here uh, the uh, efforts or the the idea of measuring temple activity. When we met with uh, a couple of general authorities in the past and we talked about this, you know, we measure home teaching or ministering as it's called right now. You measure tithing, you know, but you know, by the family, by the individual. You measure tithing on the ward. There's certain metrics that um, the church measures. Temple activity isn't one of them, but I think that is going to change, and it may have already changed or about to change or at least been has been discussed at the apostle level where they will measure you know how many times you attend the temple uh you know whether your temple recommend lapses or not etc cetera, etc cetera, whether you're you know you're full, full tithe payer you know they'll, they'll, they'll cross check you know the uh, tithing donations with the temple recommends so if you have a recommend but you haven't paid tithing for a while that will come up the bishop's got access to all this by the way so again the temple recommendals who haven't paid tithing or in a while etc all that gets flagged up and uh, there's no the, the tithing question is not going to get changed ever in order to get into the temple you're going to have to be a full tithe payer they don't know if you're a full tithe payer necessarily there's also questions around limited temple recommends which um again a diluted version of uh, the other questions and they're around if you're not a full tithe payer but you're going to do a you know some baptisms for the dead or you, you're participating in a in a limited limited way in the temple there is some flexibility on whether you should be a full tithe payer or a part tithe payer again i've had training on that as a as a bishop and on the state presidency but uh, they they uh, i i do see that the church either internally right now and, and not known to the rank and file members but probably will bring this uh, you know more into the open where they will be measuring uh, members uh, at, at temple attendance they measure it from a ward perspective, they measure how many people from that ward attended the temple at ward temple visits. So they measure that. But in terms of endowments, you know, how many baptisms for the dead, 
you know, all that is, uh, is, is captured electronically in the temple, in the system as you're aware of. And again, when you go to the temple, ensure you recommend there's a barcode and they'll know when you're going in and how long you've been there. And, and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll know quite a bit about you in terms of your temple activity. So I, I see that as, as uh, you know, I, I see changes in that area where they will start to measure that kind of stuff. In the past, they haven't done that because they saw that being too sacred an area to, that's what I was told. Uh, to measure and when we're on the state presidency the goal was to when this came up with the general authorities the response was uh baptize uh for the dead for example or do endowments for the dead um uh, let me go back they said the goal for each ward in the stake was to do to baptize an entire stake for the dead so to speak or to do endowments um that many that you match the number in a year in a year in, or in one year so if you have a stake of say you know four thousand or five thousand people in the stake active in the stake, or, or even not active, you know do five six thousand baptisms uh, in one year, you know bat baptize for the dead entire stake in one year and do the endowments for entire stake um, you know in one year, uh, those uh, conversations you know I was part of, um, but they they resisted measuring, um, you know they do measure it but they 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 don't publicly communicate to people that they measure that, but they do. Uh, but I think that's going to change. Yeah. And for our listeners out there, you know, we're on Twitter. We're at, at News Mormon on Twitter. Let us know your thoughts. What do you think about the Cody Wyoming Temple? What do you think about the Temple Recommend questions going underground? What do you think the future of Temple worship is going to be? Drop us a note over there on Twitter and we'd be very grateful for that. Now, Ian, in our neck of the woods here, there's a very interesting article here that's, that keeps persisting here. And this is, uh, you know, they ban a school district, a school district in Utah banned the Bible, and then also was uh, contemplating banning the Book of Mormon. And the Utah legislators have said, not so fast. They are they are taking a look at this law of uh, Davis School District in Utah banning the Bible, potentially banning the Book of Mormon, and they're trying to pull this back and say, hey, we need to keep the Bible in our public schools. And uh, this has just really gotten uh, a lot of traction. One of the reasons that it's gotten so much traction yeah. is the fact that Utah is a very conservative state and banning the Bible in arguably the most conservative state in the United States, that's gone uh, almost global. It's, it's really crazy. Yeah. This is extraordinary. You know, before this podcast, uh, D-Vase, I would do some research and I, and I, and I researched this and I, and I have some thoughts on this. So, uh, you know, Elder Oaks gave... Uh, a talk a while ago, a few talks actually on uh, religious freedom. Uh, if you Google this, there's lots of yeah. talks on religious freedom. Is is yes. an advocate of religious freedom? Him mm -hmm. and I, when we were being set apart, we spent the weekend with him or the afternoon there, and he was sat on my right. And him and I chatted about different things. Uh, El Cook was opposite. We talked about different things. This was the time of the Arab Spring. I remember all that was kicking off in the Middle East, and we we what the Lord. We went off into other subjects, but he's a strong advocate of religious freedom. But if you look at this, it's quite it's extraordinary, and, and to some extent, it's quite absurd. Let me let me um, explain. <laughs> if if you have the Bible, and there's a, there's a, an element of um, uh, authenticity and some level of uh, historical uh, reliability, if you like, with the with the text in the Bible, to an extent. Um, but there's certainly some some elements of, of, of truth and authenticity in it, perhaps compared to the Book of Mormon. Um, many will probably agree with that. But if you look at the Bible, look at all of the, the issues in the Bible, and there's quite extraordinary things going on in the Bible, you know, wars and all kinds of stuff going on. 
if that is a, a, a document of fiction, then you should ban all documents or stories or videos or books of fiction. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, right? You know, these are these are violent uh, books and movies. Um, Tom and Jerry, right? Uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, look at uh, War and Peace. Uh, well, let me go back. Let's just look at the the, 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 um, the fiction stuff. So anything that's written in a book that's fiction, you know, <laughs> Lord of the Rings by, uh, uh, you know, What's, what's the, the J.R. Tolkien? J.R. Tolkien, yeah, the, 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 the Englishman, the Britman, Brit guy. Um, well, that's violence, you know, and so should you ban that, right? So if it's if it's uh, fiction, should you ban all fiction? If it's nonfiction, you know, like uh, the real accounts, uh, first-hand witness accounts of the Second World War, First World War, and I've got a lot of material on, on stuff like that. These are survivors of the Second World War, you know, people in Auschwitz who, who spoke... Um, uh, directly and personally about those experiences, which are very violent, very brutal. Should you ban that? Uh, it, it's ridiculous. It's absurd that uh, you know a, a school or a trust, uh, a, a school district or an organisation would ban you know these kind of materials because it contains you know you might as well ban everything. You know it, how far do you go? Where does it stop? If you're offended by certain aspects of the Bible, which is could be violent or it could be, you know, other aspects, uh, if you're going to introduce a rule or regulation, then that should be extended to all material, surely. So I think this is a dangerous, uh, uh, you know, um, development. And, and I'm pleased to hear that hopefully some people with common sense some intelligence are stepping in to say, hang on, maybe we should, you know, look at this very, very closely. Otherwise, you're going to end up banning all fiction and all nonfiction. Uh, there's also that interesting thing, that uh, story that hit the news, I think maybe six weeks ago, where I think this is a school in the United States. They, they, um, one of the teachers of the art teacher, um, if I get my story right here, I think the students were drawing a a, um, a depiction of uh, Michelangelo, the, the you know the the naked statue, I think it was, and there was a complaint by one of the parents that uh, it was uh, pornographic or sexual in nature. Michelangelo's David, I assume you're talking Michelangelo's about. David, sorry, yes, thank you. So, the, you know, that statue, which is famous, you know, it's part of culture, it's a piece of art. You can look at it as a, as a you know, a, a, a monument of pornography or, or sexualization, if, if, if you want, that's people's prerogative. But, uh, and so, you know, where does it stop? Uh, you know, if we see art, you know, ancient art that's been uh, created, you know, where does that stop? Do you do you ban everything that's like that? Do you ban all fiction or nonfiction? So I think we need to have, you know, some common sense. Uh, hopefully, you know, you know, those kind of heads will prevail. So it's um, yeah, common sense is, is, is the right approach, I think. Yeah, definitely. You know, the uh, Bible, it is going to, according to the Desert News, the Bible will circulate in Davis District School Libraries in K through 12 because the school board has voted unanimously unanimously to overturn a review committee's decision to remove the Bible from elementary and junior high school libraries over, quote, age appropriateness. So, yes, the Bible is back in Davis County. And, um, you know, it, I, I assume that they're not going to ban the Book of Mormon, but it's just, you know, this, these type of things, you know, a lot of pundits, a lot of Fox gets uh, spun up on CNN, Fox News. This made national headlines here. Yeah, they might not ban the Book of Mormon because they might see that as being uh, fiction, uh, you know, compared to the Bible. And there's a whole conversation about proving whether the Book of Mormon is nonfiction or fiction. You know, what's the historicity of the Book of Mormon? Well, again, there are 
there are opposing views on, on the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Uh, the Bible, uh, again, it's a different, um, you know, it's a different uh, argument, a different case. I think there's some authenticity to that. And you, again, you could argue that for the Book of Mormon. So, yeah, I, I think uh, we'll be interested to see where these, uh, you know, these developments go. But I hope um, common sense will prevail. I hope. That that's a, a good sentiment as well. Um, you know, we have a Patreon site. I just want to make a note of that. If you would like uh, what you hear on this particular podcast, if you want to support us, come on over to Patreon. We'd be very grateful for a uh, donation there if you have uh, the means to do so. Now, uh, you did find, Ian, this next uh, article here, and this was uh, based off of, uh, you know, we just celebrated Juneteenth here, which uh, in the United States, I believe it is um, something like 30 states recognize Juneteenth which is the day that uh, um, you know enslaved persons were finally liberated and got the final notice on that. And the church has gotten involved here with uh, Juneteenth here, Ian. Um, what did you uncover with this? Yes, yeah, so uh, Matt Holland, who is the son of Jeffrey Holland, he and I served together in Scotland, so I know Matt pretty well. Um, him and I spent a lot of time working on a um, some material around the principle of charity from Moroni 7. We were pretty closely with another missionary on that. You know, I tracked it with him, went out, knocked on doors, taught people. So we go back, um, great missionary, by the way, great guy. And uh, he's a general authority now, as you know. And so he is, uh, he was um, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, the branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People on Monday, the June 19th, uh, the holiday of Juneteenth, as you say, that commemorates the end of slavery in the US. And the NAACP and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announced efforts to ensure longevity success of their My Baby For Me program. Uh, church is also donating $500,000 to renovate the, the Memphis branch there to continue to, to help people continue the My Baby program classes to you know, teach about you know, raising uh, babies and, and caring for babies. I th and I think it's great. I, I think I said at the very beginning of the uh, podcast that, uh, sorry, our podcast here, that the Inside Out podcast, uh, it, it, its aim is to achieve some balance, you know, where the church is getting it right and, and, and doing good things, um, then it should be recognized, you know, where it's failing and it, and it does fail a lot, uh, then let's, you know, shine a light on that and let's uh, try to facilitate change. Um, I, I think it would be easy to see, look at this story with Matt Holland with some skepticism. And I, I can see that myself that the church is trying to continue to position itself to see, you know, to show itself being an advocate for equal rights, you know, regardless of color, background, et cetera, cultures, et cetera. You know, look at the history of the church. It's, it's deeply, grotesquely racist. Look at Brigham Young is outrageous racist um, and a, a, a disgusting individual, frankly, in terms of you know how he thought but he wasn't no justification he wasn't alone in that thinking the church has got a, a deep dark underbelly of racism institutionally across generations it will never get away from that until it makes a formal apology that would open up a whole series of legal cases i think but slowly steadily it's trying to position itself reposition itself and to say to the world and the, the membership look we, we're, we're reaching out we're building these relationships with um, these other communities etc and we're investing and, and I think it's a good thing. I, I think it's it's strategic, but knowing Matt as well as I do, I, I honestly believe it's, it's a, at least on his part, it's a genuine thing. You know, he's uh, he was extraordinary uh, missionary and he's an uh, extraordinary individual. And, and um, 
he was a very fair, very balanced missionary and a very, uh, you know, one who had you know, a lot of integrity. So, you know, knowing him uh, as I do to some extent, I, I see, you know, why why he would want to be part of this, why he would accept that assignment. But I also see the, you know, what the church is trying to do in terms of, you know, without trying to sounding too cynical, trying to market yourself and reposition yourself and and uh, show the world and, and the members that it's trying to uh, be, uh, you know, respect uh, people of other color and, and other cultures. So, you know, you can see it from two sides. You'll, you'll, you'll get different opinions on this, but I, I, I brought that in because, you know, it's Matt Holland. And um, again, if you don't know him, um, you'll just see, you might look at this as, as cynical and skeptical and think ah, the church is just trying to do a little bit of, you know, marketing here, uh, which I see, I see that as well. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how many connections you have to all all of these folks, Ian. It's just that you've built up a lifetime of these type of connections. Well, I, I, I'm I'm the you know working class kid from a coal mining community uh, with no history of the church ever at all, no pedigree, no legacy, nothing like that. Who was saved by the church? You know, when when the when I was thrown out and when I joined the church, the church actually took me in and and I have deeply deeply grateful to the church it actually saved my life um in in many many ways and and then I you know this me not knowing anyone or not knowing much no no history of the church you know putting my mission papers in and, and getting called to uh, Scotland and being co called with you know with uh you know El Holland and Jim Bennett and Elder Worthland and Elder Hinckley and and, and these are the missionaries who, who have a very different background to me, very different history, you know, completely different culture, entirely different. We couldn't be any more different. And so I, I came into this uh, very unique um, and, and somewhat strange culture of the church that was very, very new to me. It was a, a huge um, impact on me, but it was it was um, it turned out to be a big success for me. It was, uh, you know, serving the mission serving the callings you know i put my whole heart into it and really want to help people really enjoyed serving and the mission taught the leadership taught me how to speak in front of people um you know how to have confidence and, and self-esteem and, and build those which i didn't have frankly when i was young when i was 16 i had very little self-esteem or self-worth i didn't feel like i was worth much back then and the church and the teachings and the relationships through people like jim and matt and, and others um other leaders and general authorities that I worked with actually has, has been a for the most part a very very positive positive experience I, I would say 95 percent of 90 percent of my leadership experience with the leaders have been uh, has been mostly positive yeah I mean your life story is very inspiring and I think that that is the reason that your podcast has taken off as fast as it has is because you have those connections and then you also came from um uh, you know, a modest, uh, a, a, a modest upbringing. You didn't have a senator for a father, and to see the contrast between, um, you know, Jim, where, where he's ended up, and you, where you've ended up, it's a, it's a great contrast. And you know, that just, just reminds me of uh, Ian. How many different podcasts there are out there? You know, um, somebody published this on Reddit just a couple of days ago. There's, there sure is a lot of LDS-related uh, news programs. There's Hello Saints, Gospel Tangents, Mormon Stories, Midnight Mormons, Mormons Discussions, Nemo the Mormon, Priesthood Dispatches, Mormon Civil War, 21st Century Saints, Mormon Book Reviews, Scripture Central, Quick Media, 
the Glass Box podcast, the Mormonish podcast, Data Over Dogma, and a bunch of others. I mean, it's just really remarkable. And you've joined in there as well. You've got the Inside Out podcast. It just seems like there's just been an explosion in the last couple of years. And, and you look yep. at how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of views these are getting. The, yeah. You know, it's been an explosion. What what is it that's creating this um, level of uh, LDS consumption that we've really never seen before? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think your podcast is quite unique. I found this very challenging, very exciting, very challenging. Because I do a lot of research for this, uh, which I, <laughs> I thought it was great. You know, I said, you know, to my uh, my wife, I've got to do, I've got to work hard for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this, this stuff that I, 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 is current news, right? Newsworthy stuff. Uh, for example, uh, first time this has been heard, I'll give you a couple of examples, which I think is breaking. Uh, I'll share it right now, and I've never heard this anywhere else. The church leadership are actively, from what I understand and believe, actively looking at AI to uh, advance and accelerate its objectives, including but not limited mission work, where people will call up and you'll be talking to a computer, but you'll be thinking you're talking to a real person. Also using AI. Wow. AI to find, I, I, I deal in the world of AI in, in the businesses that I'm involved in, and we deal with AI quite extensively. And we're looking at AI at, at, at identifying customers, you know, and, and actually reaching out and finding people to, you know, uh, for customers for certain types of partners and clients and merge acquisitions, etc. The church, I believe, and I understand from, let me go back, over the years, you forge these relationships with bishops, their presence, general authorities, mission presence, temple presence. I, I, I maintain those relationships. I hear stuff, and I'm hearing that the church is looking at AI to advance its missionary efforts to find people to teach because it's not working. You don't knock on doors anymore. You can't because it's a it's a security risk, right? You don't want people knocking on doors. The members tradition typically don't provide referrals. They certainly didn't in my mission. They don't do today so much, right? And the 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 the, the problem that your missions have got right now, where they go and and, and become a social media missionary, which is a completely different experience compared to what Jim and I experienced years ago, where you're in front of a laptop and you're talking to people electronically live, you know, that, that I can't, I would hate to do that. I can't imagine doing that. That'd be an awful. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to serve a mission. It's completely different to what I experienced, you know, those traditional missions. And so look at the cost to, to train a missionary, to fly a missionary, to fund a missionary, you know, the, the cost and, and the economies of scale technologically with AI to find people to teach. You know, the church is, I think it's reliable. I think the church is looking at AI. Uh, the second piece of information that I've uh, heard about, and uh, I think it's reliable, and I believe it, the church uh, slowly but surely is looking at involving uh, uh, female leaders in callings and, you know, more talks, I think, at general conference, hopefully, and, and having, um, for reasons that is it Roach mentioned in, a, in the reasons why, you know, uh, how, how she can reduce abuse in the church. By having more female leaders in the church in decision-making roles, it will benefit the church. And I am a big, a big advocate of that, by the way. Some of my best counselors on the stake and in the um, in, as a bishop were female. My Relief Society presence have been some of the finest counselors and some of the best leaders. And I think, uh, you know, female leaders bring a very unique and distinct set of qualities to those leadership. So I'm hearing that the church is looking at uh, not right now, but in the near future, calling uh, females into stake auxiliary calling. So stake Sunday school presidencies. So the presence is a female and ward and stake executive secretary calling. Because if you look at the uh, handbook of instructions, 
those callings uh, have to be held, it's very clear, have to be held by a Melchizedek priesthood holder. If you look at the calling itself, uh, Davis, there's absolutely no requirement uh, functionally to have a, a male priesthood leader in the role of an executive secretary. There just isn't. There's no uh, ecclesiastical um, component to that, those callings or responsibility requirement in those callings. If you look at the, the scope of those callings, what they do specifically, you look at the calling description, like a job description, there's no need to be a priesthood, uh, to, to hold a priesthood. So there's no reason why a bishopric can't have a female executive secretary. There's no reason why a state presidency can't have a female executive state presidency. And there's absolutely no reason at all why the state Sunday school presidency cannot be female, either with, with males mixed or entirely female. Uh, and I'm hearing, and I believe, and I understand this is uh, this is this discussions are happening, that that is uh, that will happen or may happen at some point in the future. I, I do think you're going to see more uh, direction and leadership in regards to uh, you know female speakers at conference. You know the disparity between male and female is is still uh, still a problem. The church is trying to be you know balanced you know in terms of. Um, you know how that looks in in the uh, leadership of the church. You're looking at governments across the world, like Canada, where I am. If you look at the uh, the federal government, it, the, the the mixture of cultures and and, uh, and people and, and male and female is it looks pretty healthy. Uh, I'm not saying you government should call based entirely on that criteria. I think I think performance and and there's other qualities that that come into that. But I think the church is going to we're going to see changes in terms of the. The, the cultural mix, the the background mix, and I think the male female um, you know balance. I think we're going to see more females in leadership callings in the future, and more females speaking at uh, general conference. Yeah, I mean, you could have the president of BYU, for instance. Uh, doesn't that's not an ecclesiastical position? The announcer for the uh, music and the spoken word that's always been a male. Um, there's no reason that that couldn't be a woman. And there's a number of other positions that you've already highlighted that uh, definitely we could see more leadership in. And what the churches struggle for um, really having enough Melchizedek priesthood holders to be able to run wards, we've seen um, it only makes sense to open up more callings to women. In fact, the church has reduced the, um, you know, the number of people who have to be married for some of the callings too. for instance, in the young single adult wards. I believe it's the counselors in the bishopric do not have to be married. I, I think maybe even the bishop himself can be single in a young single adult's work. I know the yeah, counselors that's can. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So if you're in the YSA, you can be single. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've had that in our in our stake. Uh, and but as a bishop of a ward, a traditional ward, no, you're going to be married. But the counselors can be, um, you know, can be, uh, you know, um, single. Also, if you are transgender but have not made the transgender. Um, uh, transition transition is the word then again you are a candidate to be called onto a bishopric which is which is good uh so the two hotline things there are the two not, uh, sorry the 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 hot press items there um uh we're going to see a teaming of the holy ghost and ai we're going to see ai play a more active role i think in in church including background checks in fact across every function of the church you could close your eyes and Throw doubt, uh, you know, any direction it's going to hit an aspect of the church where AI will be involved in, in, in some way or another going forward. We're seeing this in industry, business. We're seeing this with other, other organizations, the role of AI in decision making, et cetera, et cetera. There's some, there's some risk there. There's a conversation there. And, and I anticipate that we're going to see more leaders in these 
uh, callings where you really don't need uh, priesthood authority to, and you've given a couple of examples. I think we're going to see changes, and I'm encouraged by that. So yeah, it's interesting that you talked about AI and the church being together. Um, you've come to the right place because I do have um, a lot of answers for people. I guess there's a a, a bot out there that's called LDSbot.com. You can just go right to LDSbot.com, and it's a, an AI that's based off of the chat GPT model that can talk to you about the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe this was put together by a an apologist uh, site. I think it was the B.H. Roberts Foundation. But you can type your most difficult gospel question into it, and it will give you a response. Um, let's just, hey, we're live, but let's just try this. Uh, by the way, release uh, all of our episodes are live on Sunday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to interact with um, your humble host here, then uh, join us on YouTube. But Let's just try it out real quick here, and this will be our last article here. Let's ask it the most difficult gospel question that you can think of here, Ian. Uh, what do you have for the LDS bot? Okay, so. Uh, Book of Mormon historicity, you did bring that up, by the way. Is that it? Or? That's where I was going, yeah. Book of Mormon history. Okay. okay, is the Book of Mormon historical? Yes, that's a good question. Okay, well, you, you talked about AI. Let's see what. Let's see how we do. Maybe the yeah. sounds of this. Maybe the AI can, right? The Book of Mormon is considered by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to be an ancient record of God's dealings with the people who inhabited the American continent. It contains the history of these peoples as well as teachings about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people, including scholars outside of the faith, have differing opinions on the historicity of the Book of Mormon. While there is evidence that supports the Book of Mormon's historical claims, there are also critics who question its authenticity. As a Latter-day Saint AI, I can testify that many members of the church, including myself, have a strong faith in the Book of Mormon's authenticity and its power to bring people closer to Jesus Christ. How to do? Uh, that's impressive. Uh, I, I think we're going to see an extension of that where you will actually have a live conversation like you and I are having right now. Um, and uh, you might not see the face, but you'll think it's a human, but it won't be. And they'll be having a conversation with like you and I are having right now. And, and imagine the power of AI, way more powerful than we can. So they'll have access. You upload big data into an AI system. They can search information in a, in a split second uh, and, and, and be able to remember and retrieve and organize and structure information uh, bespoke to each question. I, I think that's just where, this is where it's going to go. Uh, you're going to have a, a robot essentially bearing its testimony. And, and if that, it, it, that at some point, um, you might feel the spirit. So we're going to see a teaming up of the Holy Ghost and AI. Hopefully uh, the Holy Ghost won't be made redundant and won't become uh, obsolete, but we'll see. Yeah, well, we're already seeing there. Um, we're already seeing kind of that team up with the LDS bot. And I think that uh, that's a good prophecy that we're going to probably see even more. Now, that uh, particular site is not run officially by the church, but, um, you know, a lot of times the church gives money to these foundations indirectly to mm. fund these type of uh, endeavors. So it'll be interesting to see how it all works out. If you yeah. want to get in touch with us uh, for the Mormon News Roundup, we're on Instagram. We're also on TikTok. We're on Facebook. Ian, it has been a pleasure to uh, ruminate with you on the Great and Spacious Beehive. Thank you. It's been an honor. It really has. I've really enjoyed this. I've, <laughs> I've learned a lot, and uh, I, I appreciate the speed and, the, and the, the, the directness of the conversation. I really do. I hope it's been valuable for people. Well, um, we, we really hope so. Uh, we think that we're the best uh, LDS-related uh, news podcast every week. 
And, uh, you know, we uh, shout out to Weird Alma. We use his music on Bandcamp.com. And, uh, you know, remember, remember, Ian, no one held at hand can stop this podcast from progressing. <laughs> so long. Thank you. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Hey there, brothers and sisters. Thanks for listening to the Mormon News Roundup. And if you are enjoying this show, please consider making a donation. Patreon makes an important contribution to helping us ruminate on the great and spacious beehive here. So thanks so much to everyone for for supporting us on Patreon.com.